Many years ago, my wife and I had had several conversations about kind of the heart condition we wanted our children to have. And uh, one, of our, one of the heart conditions we always wanted our kids to have was to be these kind of kids that wanted to go and connect with people and love on people that they didn't know, love on strangers. And um, so Teresa had thought through it a couple times, and she's like, hey, yeah, I got a great idea. We, we'll have our kids go to some of like, the, um, some of like the, um, the old folks' homes, I don't know, the retirement homes, and not the communities, but like the places where par- our parents are dropped off because they need the care and they need the facility and the stuff like that. And so, and, when, and we'd heard and we know that there were a lot of people who don't show up at those places. And so we're like, hey, little kids going in saying hi, it'll be great. And so I believe um, my wife did it one time and now there's, um, there's some family members that are in, in, in some of these locations. And so she'll take the kids there. And it's so funny to see my children's reactions when they come home. Yeah, I'm, we wanted these kids to be like, yeah, we loved people. No, no, no. They like, I am so scared to go back to that place. And because it's unnerving. If you've ever been in some of these locations, these beautiful people who have lived these amazing lives have in many cases um, been forgotten by their families in some cases. And in worst case scenarios, the, the fall has ravaged their brains and their bodies. Some of them um, move and they can't control their movements with their mouths or their tongues or they drool. Others will shriek and there's just some scary noises that may occur in the hallways. Well, for a little kid who's like seven or eight, he's like, where did you take me, mom? You know, it's kind of the scariest places in the world. And yet it's good. My daughter doesn't have that reaction. She has more of the, it just makes her sad is how she feels. She just feels like, oh, these people, it makes me sad. And, I, and I'm like, wow, what different reactions and what human reactions, you know, kind of before we all know better, they've just kind of got these gut level reactions, which I think is why many of us don't show up to some of these homes to go visit our loved ones because it's so painful or just so kind of eerie and scary to look at death and the fall like this. And yet Jesus, he didn't avoid these kind of locations. In fact, what we're going to see today in the book of John, in chapter 5, he actually waltzes right into the thick of all of this suffering. And so we're going to go there. Grab your Bibles, open to John chapter 5. Let's see how Jesus begins to work in the midst of this suffering. And in, some, and in this case, of much long-term suffering that's occurring. And has he engages long-term suffering and works in it. And so in the book of John chapter 5, you need to find that. It's on page 890 in the Bibles under your seats. You can grab one of those and join with us. It starts this way. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This particular feast is happening here in Jerusalem. This is a picture of the ancient city of Jerusalem, at least an artist's rendition of it. And uh, what's going on is this city is swelling up with another festival. We've already looked at one of the festivals. That was the Passover festival in which the city would be just jam-packed. The second festival on the calendar in which you had to go to Jerusalem was the Passover of Pentecost, 50 days later. And then the last one was the Festival of Booths, in which you brought tents and stuff and hung out as a rendition of the Exodus and the wanderings. And so they, were, they had all this stuff. And this is likely, it's not for sure, but this is likely the Feast of Pentecost that Jesus is at. So he's shown up with his disciples in Jerusalem, wandering around for the Feast of Pentecost. You can imagine this city is just swarmed with people, mainly surrounding this area here of the Temple Mount, because they're there to bring about their alms and their giving, and they're supposed to bless the Levites in this time with their first fruits and flood with all of their grain and all what they've, they've, they've received from the blessing of God. 
So it's just like one giant like worship service where you give your tithes and offerings and that's pretty much it. And so that's what they're all gathered around. And at the same time, lots of people who have different infirmary, infirmities and maybe they were blind or maybe they can't walk or whatever because they can't live on their own would surround the city as well in seeking alms and other things. And so this is just a mass packed out situation and it goes on to say that there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has, a five roof, which has five roofed conolades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so what he's talking about is right up here are these two pools. And it would have had, a, 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 it would have had five roofs over it. it looks, and it would have looked like a, you know how your eight is shaped on your digital clock with these little bars that kind of go one and here and here? It's the same shape you would have with the pools. Two pools, both of them about the size of a, of a football field, and they're 20 feet deep. This place is huge. And so this very large set of pools is a, is a place people would gather in mass, because there would be these springs or something that would bubble up the water. And the superstition was that when it was bubbling up, if you were the first in or some of the first in, God would heal you or somebody would heal you. The gods would heal you. In fact, we know that this runs so deep in the culture that nearby when they, did our, when they do archaeology, they find a, what's called an Asclepion, which is a, a temple to the god Asclepius, an ancient god who was known as like the healer god. And so people, this is kind of a weird thing to find in Jerusalem, but it was a mixture of pagan and folk religion along with Israelite religion. And Jesus doesn't avoid this location. He walks right into it with a mass of people who are suffering a vast different ailment, seeking healing, longing for it so much, they would jump into a 20 foot deep pool if they could to get healed. And so this is the picture that Jesus is wandering in with his disciples. You can imagine they're probably handing out money. They're walking, following Jesus where they can. They're wondering, why are we here? What's going on? This is, the, this is Pentecost, so maybe he's here to, to give, give away something. This is really cool, and so as, or really nerve-wracking, whatever it is. As they go through in verse 5, it picks up. One man was there who had laid an invalid for 38 years. Now, that's a big statement. 38 years. The average person only lived to roughly 40 years. This man is probably older than 40, and he's lived the majority of his life as an invalid, incapable and unable to, to actually walk or, and to actually have energy. He, is, uh, he has been in this state for a long, long time. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed is that odd to you? Because that's odd to me. I mean, think about it. Here's a pool. Everybody comes to this pool for what purpose? To get healed. And Jesus walks up to this guy and says, you want to be healed? I'm surprised he doesn't turn around and go, duh. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. Um, the man instead answers this way. Verse 7, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another, another steps down before me. And, and this is such an interesting response. And such an interesting interplay. What is going on? Why does Jesus ask the question? Why is the man responding like he does? What is happening in this scene is so different than what you would expect of Jesus to do. You'd expect people hounding Jesus, begging him to be healed, but no, 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 none of that goes on. Jesus walks up to this man, asks him a question, and it ensues from there. 
What's interesting is about the man. He's been an invalid for 38 years. You know, and some of you have dealt with chronic pain, and some of you are currently dealing with chronic pain. Or, chronic, or some kind of chronic disease that has, con- that has conquered the joy of your life or, or entered into you in such a manner that it is, it is seeping into you and pulling you into, into a scenario that is, is a struggle point. And I've lived around people with chronic pain. And I, I've, had, um, I've known a lot of people with back pain and fibromyalgia and these things. And so I've watched it. And, and a similar thing can go on for those of us who've lived around somebody with chronic pain. It can be a fa- it is like a begging journey. How many times has this man gone to God and said, God, would you just heal me? You know what I'm talking about? How many times have they gone to church just hoping maybe this is the week? How many times did this man go to synagogue? How many times did he show up with the priest and say, what offering do I have to give? What's, what sacrifice do I need to lay down? What, what thing do I need to do to get this thing, up, to, to get back to who I was? How many doctors had he seen? I mean, some of you have tried the medical establishment. Some of you have moved on and you try and holistic some of you have moved on and, and you're really kind of contemplating and going, you know, oh God, you don't seem to be showing up over here. Yeah, the medical stuff doesn't seem to be working. Maybe the psychic healer is going to be a good idea. And that may sound funny or odd, but that's exactly where this guy was. He had resorted to the pagan pools in hopes to be healed. So much so he'd been laying there long enough to have attempted it a few times and not gotten in. And it's important to note because what can happen in long-term suffering is that we can end up with a malady of the soul more than a malady of our body. And one of those maladies we need to be careful about is bitterness. And I believe that is the malady this man had fallen under. Now, this man who had had a malady for 38 years, whatever it was, and it appears it made him unable to walk. Maybe he was paralyzed or just so weak he couldn't move very quickly, but he had found himself in a situation after all of this, he seems bitter. You just go, Greg, where are you getting that from? Well, from a few of the responses that we're going to see from him as we go along. But mainly when you look at him and he steps forward and Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He's not like, yes, do you know somebody who can heal me? Can No, he's just kind of done. He's defeated and bitter. And all he can do is tell you about everybody else who didn't help him. Nobody put me in the pool. Everybody else got in front of me. And there's this sense that he's kind of so consumed by his bitterness that where are his family and his friends? Don't forget, this is a festival. This is when you're with family. This is when you're with friends the most. And he's alone at a pool with no help, no aid, And when Jesus is willing to do something, all I can do is point out why everything's a mess. Now, I'm not going to knock him for this fact. I just want to take it as an observation and and something that we need to realize can easily happen to any of us who deal with people with long-term suffering or we ourselves have entered into long-term suffering, is that not to wonder at God and to think that God doesn't care about us anymore and God doesn't want anything to do with us, but to realize that Jesus, out of all the people that were sitting in that conolade, of the thousands that surrounded, he walked up to this guy who suffered for 38 years. He could have picked anybody and he goes to this man. Why? What is going on in this scene that he would single out a man who suffered for 38 years? Because what's going on now is Jesus is going to enact a, a response, a back and forth response. 
My, my son's just bought walkie-talkies. Anybody love playing with walkie-talkies when they were young? Yeah, I love walkie-talkies. There's, you know, especially when you're a kid, you press the little Morse code button, beep, 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 and just annoy your mom. But the idea, my kids have learned that. Instead, they press the phone ringing button. You're just like, stop that. But they've got these walkie-talkies. And the great thing about it right now is they're really like into them. And so they'll sit there and go, hey, Nate, what are you doing? And Nate goes, bleep, 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 bleep. I'm playing with the walkie-talkie. And the funniest thing about it is they're two feet away from each other. You know what I'm saying? They're really excited about these things, and they're back and forth. Because what I like about walkie-talkies is it teaches you, and maybe some of us, this would be a great illustration for like a marriage seminar. It teaches you how to be quiet, listen, and then you have to be quiet and let somebody else talk. Because you both can't talk at the same time or you don't hear each other. And what's going to go on here is that kind of a pinging response a bunch of you are going to go, I'm going to get stock in walkie-talkies after this sermon. But the, uh, it's a pinging response. Here is suffering. And this man has responded to the suffering's call by becoming bitter. But how does God respond to the suffering call? He shows up and does something radical. He gives grace. And I use the word grace on purpose because look at this man. When Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He doesn't say, Yes. He wasn't looking for Jesus to find him. He didn't run up to Jesus when he saw him. In fact, I think he was staring at the pool the whole time. He's so ready to get in that pool, so ready to trust that pool, that when Jesus shows up to heal him, he doesn't even glance at Jesus long enough to know who the guy is. Because later, he's going to be asked, who healed you? And he's like, I don't know. I didn't get a good look at him. He's staring at the pool. When's it going to bubble? When's it going to bubble? When's it going to bubble? When's it going to go? When's it going to stir up? When's it going to go? He's so focused on this, he misses the interaction. And in this focus, in this thing, Jesus kind of sets that aside. The man doesn't ask for it. Jesus approaches him. Read all the Gospels. If you want to go home this week, you know, take this week, read the Gospels. What you're going to discover is something very interesting about people who get healed. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, people who want to be healed come to Jesus. They walk up and say, Jesus, heal me. They yell from a distance. They beg Jesus to heal them. In this case, Jesus goes to him. It breaks all the patterns and norms. Because Jesus is emphasizing something. He's emphasizing that he's giving grace. This man's not looking for it. It is undeserved. It is not something he was asking for. Even when he was asked if he wants it, he doesn't ask for it back. He has just given it. Let's look at this again. It says, the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and the water is stirred up. When I'm going down another, steps, steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So, boom, this grace is given. This man gets up and moves on. See, God is ready to give grace still. You may be ready to give up on God in your suffering. You may be ready to give up on God in your marriage. You may be ready to give up on God with your children. But the bottom line is that God is still out healing and transforming this world. You see, there's a reason Jesus did this, and the reason is found in the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, there is this picture that begins to emerge as the prophets start speaking about the coming Messiah, this coming king called Christ. And he says, in that time, and when he comes, these radical things will occur. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. 
Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So this is this picture of God coming in with salvation, coming in with justice, redeeming all the evil. And then it goes on. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And what he says is basically that picture of the Garden of Eden, that picture of paradise, it's going to come back. It's going to return. And when Jesus walks up, he says that picture is called the messianic kingdom. It is the picture of God's rule, of God's kingdom. And what God is doing, what God is up to is he's going to redeem this world. And he's inviting all of us to come along with him. He's going to resurrect this earth. He's going to make it good, make it right, make it perfect through his son, Jesus. And in that day, there will be no pain, no suffering, no mourning, no hurting, no sin. And all these things will be right. When Jesus shows up and looks at this guy, he shows up to say, I want to show you that I'm the Messiah. This is what it looks like when I rule. And he gives grace and the man is healed. So if you're under a suffering malady of some kind and you're wandering and you're wondering about God, I want to tell you what you don't have to. God is going to heal you if you trust in Jesus Christ. It may not occur on this side of the resurrection, but he is going to heal you. It reminds me of a story Brent has told me about his friend. Many years ago, he was in a band, and Brent had this long, flowing blonde hair. It's an incredible picture. Ask him to show you sometime. It is funny. But he did. He had this incredibly long, flowing hair. He was in a hair band, and he would just, you know, rock out. And one of his members, as they've grown up, had an MS, and he was coming to the end of his life. Couldn't use his functions, was, was barely able to talk, and so they went up north to go visit his friend. And while he was there, he was just burdened with this question. He asked his buddy, he said, hey man, how in the world is it that you answer when you beg God and beg God to heal you, that you can answer the question that he didn't? And he said, no, Brent, you don't understand. I've already been healed. He's like, what? He's like, on the inside, I'm healed. I'm just waiting for my body to catch up. That is the reality when you've received the kingdom of God in your life through Jesus Christ. Your soul is healed. The maladies of this world, the destruction of sin, the depression, the garbage that has been created because we've been torn apart by our sin is being healed by the work of Jesus Christ. And as this world is resurrected, so will we. And all the maladies and all the issues of this world will be finalized and done with. And you can be assured that in the suffering that you're in, it does not have to lead you to bitterness, but can lead you to hope as you trust God who has given you his great love. And that's the picture that Jesus is doing here. The man didn't ask for it. He just gives him grace. And so how does God respond to the suffering? He responded with grace. Now, how does the man respond to grace? Well, it's interesting. He, he obeys. He gets up, takes his mat, and walks. And so He's up walking, and verse 9, the author throws something at us that's crazy. It says, now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now what's likely gone on in this scenario is his bed is not like he just, you know, bound up this huge piece of wood and, and a mattress. No, it was this mat of reeds, and he would roll it up, put it under his arm, and he's just walking. You know, he didn't see Jesus, didn't know where Jesus went. He just starts walking. He's like, okay, I was told to walk. I'm just going to go walking. And so he's walking, and it's likely he's going to go home. But realize he's outside the city, and it's against the law to walk 
from one zone to another, from outside the city into the city. And so it's very likely he gets to the sheep gate to walk through it. And there are some Jewish officials there, Pharisees, and they're like, you can't do that. You can't carry that mat. What are you doing? And the man freezes. I'm in trouble. I've been walking for five minutes and I'm already in trouble. It's like when you first start driving a car, you know, so you're freaked out. And they look at him and they say, what, who, what are you doing? And, and, he, and he answers, he says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who healed you? No, if you're not reading your Bible, you know that's not what it says. If you're, if you're reading, it says, look, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Forget the healing thing. We don't need to know about that. Why are you carrying your bed? That's odd, isn't it? This scene reminds us that in this, fair, in this conflict with the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, religious response to God's work is to totally miss the point. If we find ourselves and we see somebody has come to Christ and we get on them because they don't have a pre-tribulational rapture viewpoint at that point, we're like, how dare you? You got to get the right theology down and get me saved. You don't know what I'm talking about? God bless you. But we can, get, we can major on the minors real quick. This guy has just been healed of a 38-year infirmity. And they're like, so why are you walking with your mat? You know, there have been some of us who know people who have been saved and they get all excited about their faith. And they go home and they announce, I've, I've, come, I've, I've become a Christian. And they go, what are you talking about? You're already, and then fill in the blank. You're already a Lutheran. You're already a Baptist. You're already a Catholic. You're already a Mormon. You, you name it. You're all, you are born Muslim. Religious people will miss the point of God's great movement in people for the sake of a label or a, or a thing that's a, a small little detail. And don't think that's just religious people in like official church religions. No, 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 no. Religious people, including secular religious people. You say, how does that work? For example, I've known people who have come out of certain lifestyles to become a Christian and been told, you can't do that. Don't you understand? That's not possible. You can't become abstinent. You can't be celibate. You can't do that. You can't stop drinking with us. It's just a different religious viewpoint, different moral stances, but we all do it as humans, and we can miss the movement of God by having a religious response. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't rules and there aren't doctrines that we ought to get engaged in, but when somebody comes to Christ, we ought to celebrate and now bring them in and disciple them forward, not get on them for some small detail that they haven't figured out yet. You know what I'm saying? That's just kind of a reminder to me as I'm looking at these guys to not be a church in which we major on the small things when somebody has come to faith, but to celebrate what God is doing so we see what God is doing. In this case, the man's been healed and they completely ignore it. Instead, in this intimidation, I think it birthed something in this man's heart that was already there and is starting to come out. And so God's putting this all together. And so as we move forward, suddenly the man doesn't know what to do. He he meets these encounter. I don't think he went through the gate and just said, whatever, I got to go. He's like, okay, I can't walk through the gate. I can walk with my mat, but I can't go through the gate. And so he's just wandering around the temple complex with his mat. He hasn't gone anywhere. He's just kind of walking. Like, 
okay, where do I go from here? You know, tons of people just carrying his bed around because he's not allowed to pass into the city. The reason I think that is because suddenly he's walking in the temple, it says, and Jesus encounters him. We pick it back up in verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus was with, had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. I, this, Jesus just likes to point out the obvious stuff in this text. You know, he's like, do you want to be healed? Yeah. See, you're well. Yeah, I've been walking around for 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. But Jesus is doing something again. He's pointing at the heart condition. He's aiming at something because suddenly Jesus says something that throws all the commentators and all of us off when we read it. It it causes a wrestling match in our soul. He says, see your well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Doesn't it cause anybody else like a little frustration? Because doesn't it sound like Jesus is saying, hey, look, your sin led to your problem." And you know, at first when I started going through this, I'm like, yeah, I know Jesus is not saying that. He's saying this. And then I start reading it and I start finding out, no, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. This man's sin caused his malady for 38 years of his life. And now that he's well, Jesus says, don't you dare go back to that sin or something worse may happen to you. So God shows up in a new response. And that response is the call to a better life. Now, we may not sound like it, that's a call to a better life, but it is. He's saying, don't go back to the old life. Go to a better life. You received grace now. Move on to the greater life. Don't go back to the sin you are living in. Move forward in your living. Move forward away from this. And yet this man is clearly ended up with this malady from his sin. Now, the Bible does not teach that all maladies in your life, all suffering comes from a personal sin. Now, all suffering comes from humanity's sin, right? That's not, that is the case. But it does not come from a personal sin. And so right now, some of you who have got a lifelong malady or a malady of some kind, maybe sitting there going, what did I do? What, is God ticked at me? Is that what you're telling me, Greg? I'm freaked out now. I'm going to go home and be like, what God did I? No. Let me just say this to you very clearly. If your malady comes from a sin, you will know it. You know it. You don't have to guess or worry that something you did led to this sin or led to this, not st- this malady, sorry. And what is going on is that this man knew. Jesus was able to use the, you're well now. Let me remind you. This man had sat for 38 years knowing that whatever he had done had led him to the situation that he was in. Whatever he had gone through had led him, the consequence to where he was at and it ground on him and ground on him and ground on him and ground on him. For 38 years. Maybe he thought, God doesn't want to heal me because I've sinned. Oh, he doesn't want to help me because I've sinned. That's what the problem is. God gave up on me. I'm done with God. I'm going to go to the pagan temple and try this out. Is that what happened? It's, this, is, this is where the bitterness begins. First, it was a horrible feeling. Maybe then it turns into, ah, you know, this is what God did to me. I don't deserve this. I've suffered long enough. And maybe that's why we see a weird thing about this man. He never thanks Jesus. You notice that? You have not been able to walk for 38 years. You have been an invalid for 38 years, and in one second, he heals you. And you don't even take the time to figure out who it was. You don't even try. You just get up, take your stuff, and go home. And when the, when the, when the leadership tells you you can't do that, you're like, oh, oh God, okay, okay, I can't do that. 
This man has been in a situation where he doesn't turn and thank you, Jesus, for what you did. Can I follow you? No, we'll see that guy later in the book of John. This guy literally just goes, cool. And I wonder if inside of him was not a heart of gratitude, but a heart of entitlement. I have suffered long enough, God. This was ridiculous that you put me through 38 years for that. And that's speculation. But it resonates with my heart. Because I know my heart is dark enough to get to the place where if I was suffering because of something I did, and it took that long, I probably would get pretty angry at God at some point. And in the midst of all that struggle and all that stuff, he's healed. And he's like, about time. There's not gratitude. There's not worship. There's just entitlement. I deserve this. But God gave him grace. He didn't ask for it. He wasn't looking for it. And that's what's interesting. From this grace, he seems to point at this man's entitlement. But God's given us grace. He saved us from our sins. And I want to ask us, are we in danger of responding wrongly to God's grace with entitlement? Well, God had to do that. He's a good God. No, he didn't. He's a just God. He did not have to forgive us. In fact, it cost him his son to forgive us. I don't think he takes it lightly. I think he takes it extremely seriously. And so he's given us his son, Jesus. He's loved us in this way. He's given us a freedom. He's offered us a resurrected earth and a resurrected world with repurposed and all this stuff. And we get to be involved in the same thing through Jesus Christ. And he says, here, it's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's grace. And I think it should explode in us as a response of gratitude. Amen? It should explode in us in a sense of worship as we've talked about. And so, but for this man, that's not where it's at. In fact, Jesus says, hey, look, don't sin or it'll get worse. It could be worse. And here's what's odd, because our culture needs to hear this as well. We live in a society right now that when they check if a child has any kind of, um, any kind of genetic difficulties, or they may be born with some kind of genetic problem in our minds, it is a high percentage that child will be aborted. Do you know what we do now? We make movies that tell you, if you and I ever wind up becoming quadriplegics, it's probably a good idea that you consider killing yourself and dying with some dignity. One of the movies just came out did that. We are devaluing the world of, 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 the dis, of disability by saying your, val- your life value is so small. You know what? God just says, no way. Those people are made in my image. And one day, all that will be over. I love these people. They are my people. I will give them grace. And in this response of what he does, he actually tells us something. He looks at this man who's been healed from his malady and he tells him this, it, you need to stop sinning so, this does, so something worse doesn't happen to you. The worst is not so that you wind up back with an infirmity. The worst is that you end up in hell. You see, it's worse, and I want to make this very clear, it's worse, and this is for our culture, it is worse to be an unrepentant, sinful person than to be a repentant person who has a lifelong malady. It is worse to have all your health, everything going for you, 
and to be unrepentant in your sin. There is a worse danger than be somebody who has repented and find yourself struggling with life because you have a difficulty, a suffering, a depression, a long-term suffering. God does not devalue you because you have long-term suffering. He warns us all that it is a more dangerous thing to not stop sinning, to not turn after being given grace. Jesus puts it this way. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. That is a radically opposed vision than our our world would say. And so we realize that Jesus isn't devaluing this man. He's actually calling him to a greater vision in which our sin can lead to worse things, where lust can lead to adultery, where greed can lead to stealing, where lying leads to becoming untrusted, where it all winds up, sin grows to worse sin. It can happen for us, and so let it be a warning. Maybe God today is telling you, listen to me, I know what's going on in your life. Don't Keep doing it, or it can and will get worse. I don't mean to be a downer on that. I just think Jesus is being super serious at this point. Randomly walks up to the guy in the temple and just goes, Hey, you're doing good. Don't sin anymore, or it's going to get worse. (laughs) You know how this guy responds? He's offended, I think. Or he doesn't care because he turns right around and goes and throws Jesus under the bus. Check this out. So Jesus finds him, tells him that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We'll dive into the details of that when we return back to John, but just note, this is the turning point of the book. Jesus is doing these signs. The disciples are amazed. People are coming to faith. People are believing. They're seeing this stuff. At this point, he does a sign, and instead of people believing and following him, the establishment turns to desire to kill him. From this man's testimony... Because he's ungrateful, unwilling to follow, but willing to fear men over God. It may come from offense, and I want to warn us, and I want to just put this down. If, If somebody tells you the truth and you're offended, what does that say about your heart? Honestly, if we cannot receive a rebuke, take it and even contemplate it. What does it say about who I am? We need to ask ourselves that question in a world filled with offense. And this man was offended, but he needed to hear what Jesus had to tell him. But even worse, I think he was so scared of what the, what the Jewish authorities could do to him, he went and he told on Jesus. So scared of the power that the people had versus the power of the one who healed him. He was willing to throw Jesus under the bus. 
And it's an odd thought because in a culture that's rising up with more and more power that can do all kinds of things to you on social media, that can stand in your face at your workplace, then cause you trouble wherever you go, in a world that is continually starting to creep in and focus in to cause more crunch on the Christian life, are we going to fear him who can heal and resurrect us or are we going to fear those who have little power? As Jesus said to his disciples, and I think this was echoing in the mind of John, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We don't need to fear man who has very little authority over us. But we need to respond rightly. One, we need to respond in an attitude of gratitude. Why don't we have a great thankfulness to God? Amen? He has given us a great hope and a great promise of resurrection. And one day, hear me, your suffering will be over. And I think that's worthy of praise. The second thing that we should respond is not by continuing in sin, but following Jesus Christ. Are we going to continue to sin once in a while? Yes, but far less than if we follow Jesus. So follow Christ. And third and finally, let's fear God in, the world, in this world. Let's respect him. Let's be after him and not fear what men can do to us. And that's the basics of this passage. I think it's got a great challenge for us as Christians as we move forward. So let me pray over you, if you would. Father, I bring this church before you, bring this congregation that's here today, these people who have come, and I pray that you would indeed just allow us to have the right responses to your great grace. We weren't looking for it, and you gave it to us. We didn't know you were just handing it out, and you did. So help us to follow after you with all of our hearts. Help us to walk away from sin and to be with you. Help us to have great gratitude. And God, enable us, please, to just be a people who worship you. We love that you've given us this grace. Thank you so much for it. And help us live in it rightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.